I'm Laura Vinroot Poole of Capital, and this is What We Wore. J.J. Martin, founder of La Double J, is back on What We Wore to discuss her new book, Mama Milano, releasing this fall. J.J. shares how her life and business unfolded once she fully embraced the Italian culture and listened to what it was trying to teach her. This episode is full of spiritual and creative wisdom, whether you're part of the fashion industry or not. The book, I had gotten a PDF of it and sort of spun through it. And with my 51-year-old eyes was kind of like, oh, I can't really see it that much. And uh, I was like, looks like a lot of pretty pictures, amazing. And then I got it in person. And JJ, I cannot tell you how spectacular this book is. I spun through it for a second and thought, ooh, pretty pictures. And then I started to read it. And it is so beautifully written. And it is so so intense and so heartfelt and beautiful and and so JJ, really. But I, I was so impressed by it. I, I can't tell you. This is like, honestly, <laughs> the biggest gift to hear this because you work so hard on something like this. And I kept like looking at my editor and being like, is this the dumbest, craziest thing anyone has ever done? Because basically it looks like a coffee table book. Exactly. 70,000 words on very personal stuff. So it's like part memoir, part like how to start a business, how to raise your vibration, how not to like, you know, throw your ex-husband out of the window when you're working with them. I mean, it's kind of like a little bit of everything. Well, it's so beautiful. And I I mean, I read that cover to cover in probably five hours, probably actually. I I mean, I really, I went back and read things. I just loved it. I I so touched to hear this. You're like my first <laughs> real feedback. I don't think anyone's actually, you know, outside of my company actually read this thing. I can't tell you I'm thrilled, honey. Yay. Yeah. It's spectacular. And I think we've talked about this before. I also am a real lover of Milan. You and I may be the only people outside of Italy and the fashion industry that love it like we do. I, I love Milan so much and I always have. And I, I appreciated that too. I think that you you took so much time and care and effort to to make people understand the beauty of it and, and why it's special. It's not an easy city to understand. It takes a minute. It really does. And by the way, it took me about six years. So <laughs> everyone else gets a minute and I'm just slow to the party. It took me six years. And I was really tantruming and stomping my feet and screaming and complaining to anyone who would listen because I was just so fed up with the dubbed movies, the slow service, the fact that I couldn't <laughs> get takeout. There was no place to do yoga. I mean, I was in such this American, privileged, ridiculous critical mindset. And it really took me, you know, it, it, and that's why I called it this whole thing, the, the, the mama Milano, because it's really about getting into another energetic, which is a very feminine energy of, wait a minute, let me just accept, let me just first surrender. (laughs) Let me relax. Let me then open. And then I can finally see and feel the, like, meraviglia, the wonder that is all around me, because there is so much beauty. It takes a little longer. You have to have that patience and you're not going to get it if you're kind of stomping your feet the way I was and and bitching and complaining. I know you're from California, but actually tell me more about how you got to Milan. 
So I was living in New York in the late 90s, and I was working at Calvin Klein in the marketing department, and I was the only person there wearing my crazy vintage finds from the Chelsea flea market. Everyone else was in like rigorous black, white, khaki, <laughs> like looking like Carolyn Bissett. I started taking Italian lessons a week prior to going to being dragged to a party by a friend that I didn't want to go to. And I met an Italian guy at that party who was just visiting from Milan and we started long distance dating. Yeah. I ended up moving to live with him one month before September 11th. So I was not in New York for that. I arrived to Milan and I didn't have a job. I didn't have any friends. I didn't have any family. And I had like, you know, this is before smartphones. So there was no smartphone. <laughs> there was very little internet because you couldn't find wireless anywhere. I I had to like get cranking. So I, I started studying Italy, um, Italian um, really intensely for three months. And then I actually ended up, I, I took a, a job for a short amount of time working at Costume National. And while I was working there, I met a journalist called Godfrey Dini. Did you ever meet him at the shows? Do you remember Godfrey? Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds very familiar. Yes. Like a really salty, hilarious Irishman. And yeah. 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 Yes. Yes. Well, he was the editor of the world's first fashion online news service, which was called Fashion Wire Daily. And he needed a stringer reporter and he hired me. And um, that was my first job in Milan, my first real job. What were the most jarring differences that you first noticed about Italian and American culture? First of all, I could you couldn't get fed on a Sunday <laughs> because every supermarket, cafe, bar, restaurant was closed on a Sunday. So like, this was just like, you know, I felt like a child in a lot of ways, you know, the fact that you really do need to know how to cook to live in Italy is a real thing. I mean, now it's different. They do have takeout food. They do have delivery services, but, but 22 years ago, they did not. I mean, if you wanted to eat out in a restaurant every night, like that's what you would be doing if you didn't know how to cook. And I, I didn't have that. I would say just the the sheer time it took to get like very basic things done. I don't know, getting Wi-Fi in your house or setting up cable or like, you know, um, getting a, a cell phone plan or whatever it was. These things would take like months <laughs> dealing with the bureaucracy. You know, I kept wondering, like, why do I have to wait in a line at the post office to pay a a, a traffic fine? Like, why can't I just like send a check in there? <laughs> What are some of the things that you that you found challenging then that you love now? Well, at first, I remember being very resistant when I would go to like a fancy dinner and be seated next to someone's kid. I'd be like, <laughs> why is the kid at the dinner party? Okay. And now when I get seated next to a, an Italian kid, I am like, I know that that is the money spot. This is the best place to be. It is like, it is the best place to be. And I love the way they mix the generations because it's such everything is a family affair and i really come to realize how special that is and and it, it's truly only in italy i've related to so many things in the book as being southern as well i mean there really were a lot of things where i was like well that's how how it is here too <laughs> exactly and because the <laughs> south in america really does have that that more gentle, leisurely, more, more open, more, I would say, friendly first. Mm -hmm. It's relationship-based, I think, yes. in the South, a lot more than 
transaction-based, which happens certainly in Los Angeles and New York and San Francisco, uh, where, where I spent a lot of time. Yeah. You know, the relationship thing at the beginning, I couldn't believe that a PR person, I would call up the PR person to get information for a story that I was on deadline for, because it was a, you know, it was a web, the internet. Fashion wire daily. Yeah. (laughs) It was an internet. I needed this information immediately. And she'd be like, let's have lunch tomorrow. And I'm like, I don't want to have lunch with you. I want the information. And so, and what I realized though, is that going to that lunch, not only did I get the information, but I also got like 500 tips on everything else I needed to know about Milan, travel places. Oh my gosh, you need to meet my friend. You end up getting so much more when you start building relationships. And Italians do that through mealtime, through time that, you know, whenever it is that, uh, you know, they're socializing, aperitivo, their playtime, their pleasure, their vacations. You know, at, the, at first I was irritated that I couldn't do anything on a Sunday. Now I've completely relaxed into the Italian way of of life, which is on weekends and on vacations, I don't want to do anything. I want to fully relax and just melt into the pleasures and the senses of being in this miraculous country. Speaking of surrender, I think earlier in the book, you talk about working in a cafe. Can you talk about that moment and sort of what you learned Oh my gosh. Okay. So this is Pasticceria Cookie, which was founded in 1936. And I remember walking into this cafe because it's one of the oldest, you know, still traditional cafes that's still in family operation today. And it was near my house. And I remember arriving with my Sony Vio and <laughs> opening it up and like trying to find the Wi Fi, which did not exist. So anyway, <laughs> I would just sit there and I would type my articles because I was so accustomed to working in these um, very public places. I always love the buzz around me. You know, you always see these writers um, in America at cafes. There's there's a real sense of kind of warmth and community. Anyway, these people looked at me like I had six heads and I was stark <laughs> naked. I mean, that's how strange it was for, for them to see someone to come and work in their cafe, which is a place for pleasure, not for working. So it was so funny. I mean, they really looked at me badly and I felt the (laughs) stares and I felt the sort of rejection. And then it was very funny because maybe like a year, I went through this like alienation with them for a couple years. And then it turned out that a philosopher guy started, um, that, that was always there talking to his friends for like six hours. You know, they would have like one of April spritz that lasted six hours. That's also a very Italian thing. Like you're not having six drinks in six hours. You're having (laughs) one drink in six hours. And he would be there like chatting with his friends all day long. And then one day he brought his computer. And I remember being like, Oh my God, this guy and I, so we sat next to each other and we kind of shared right. Cause he was a writer and we sort of like became friends. And then I really started watching the ways in which he would interact, not only with his friends that he would meet there, but also with the staff of the cafe. And he was friends with each of them and he was always teasing them. And he was always making comments about what they brought and how good the cappuccino was. And I started realizing how different it is that an Italian when you want to kind of 
have a, a, a truly beautiful experience, nothing is a transaction, not even the guy that brings your coffee or your water or your brioche. It's all an opportunity to develop a relationship, to scratch their back, for them to scratch your back, for them to tell you how beautiful you are, for you to tell them how much you love their food. And it's all this just like wonderful, like, you know, loving, very open-hearted environment. It's really, it, and he really showed me the ropes. And after that, not only did I become friends with all of the staff at Kuki, I even broke through to like the patriarch, the 90 year old owner of the place and, you know, became friends with him. And then eventually Double J, um, you know, this is maybe 18 years after my first coffee there, we did takeovers of this cafe. So this place is like really in my heart and it's an amazing um, very, very classic environment. I love your description of him walking, seeing him. I, I want to say it was like on Christmas Eve or something, running into him. It was his birthday. Yeah, his 95th birthday or something. He was like, it is my birthday, Kara. Do you, you know, chin, chin. You know, he just, he was so, he was at the bar alone and he was like, have a drink with me. It was so wonderful. It was so cute. Oh, I love it. JJ, one of the things that I found really touching and painful was um, you writing about your fertility journey and and also how it transformed, I guess, into your relationship with Italy and your relationship with creating La Double J. Will you talk about that and and talk about, I guess, just the mother's role in Italian culture and how how you manifested that? Well, this is so funny that it's all so tied together. I mean, we are always placed in the right in the right place, in the right time with the right people, even when it is so uncomfortable, even in your own family unit. I mean, I grew up in a family where my mother and I were not that close. She had nothing in common with the Italian mothers that I saw, which were all about making, you know, spending as much time with their children as possible, feeding them, comforting them, wanting to hear everything. I mean, they, they like the Italian mothers have I would say not all of them. I do know some that are are kind of more like my mother, but I would <laughs> say the majority of the Italian mothers have this just incredible capacity for, first of all, unconditional love. These children are spoiled rotten, <laughs> but at the same time, you don't see Italians growing up to be arrogant jerks. I mean, yeah. you really see that they are well-adjusted, you know, and, and I think a lot of it comes from the way that they're their parents are really let them run wild when they're kids. They they can do anything they want. They can say anything they want. And it's adorable. And, and there's a lot of tolerance, um, not a lot of criticism. And I thought that was a really beautiful thing. And this whole, you know, I started reflecting more on the Italian mother when I went through my own infertility journey, which was extremely painful in any way, but especially in a country where children are so revered as they are in Italy. Like Italy is all about the family. And here I was like, not able to provide one. So it was super hardcore. My husband was devastated. Aww. Also as a woman, not to be able to like give that to your husband. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's a crusher on so many levels. And then it was my own my own desire to be a mother, you know, there was just, it was operating on many different, many different levels. I went through many, many rounds of IVF. It was a terrible experience. I don't recommend or wish that on anyone. I find that those, those um, drugs that they give you are extremely dramatic and traumatic on, you know, it was, 
it was really awful on a mental, physical, emotional, spiritual, and energetic level. I literally felt like I was being poisoned on all of those levels. And yeah. And it was so interesting, really the day that I decided to end it was the very day, the same day that a friend passed me the name of an energy healer. And when I started uh, working with her, she was specialized in fertility. I've talked about her a lot in my own Instagram. We've had her on at many double J online events. Her name is Elizabeth Manning. And she was really talking to me about like, you know, you know, this isn't just physical and biological, if the baby is not coming through, you need to look deeper. You know, you need to look there. There could be emotional blocks, mental blocks, and certainly energetic blocks. There could be karmic blocks. There could be past life blocks. I mean, there's right. so many different things operating. Once you awaken to the fact that you are a multidimensional human being operating in, in way more than your science teacher teacher told you and way more your biology teacher and way more than your Western medical doctor told you. And I started learning all of this and realizing that fertility itself is for sure set. I, I believe that it's for sure centered in that womb area for men, for women and in the prostate for men in that second chakra, but that Fertility is not just an energetic that we can use to produce children, but there are so many other creations that are waiting for us to give birth to. And once I sort of understood that, tapped into it, started working on it, a lot of this has to do with self-worth and self-love. And that's what I mean about the emotional blocks. A lot of this has to do with our own relationships with our mothers, our own ability to mother ourselves. These are all things that I've learned over the years that were really impacting what was going on with me. And at the same time, once I started unraveling that stuff, it wasn't it wasn't like a guaranteed kid, but it definitely was a guaranteed explosion of other creations, one of which is Double J. And how long after working with Elizabeth did that start or had it already started? I mean, the crazy thing was I was it was in my head and I had put things on paper and I want to say like more or less nine months to 12 months. I mean, it was like a baby's <laughs> gestation. And so did you have an idea of what you thought it was? I know it started with vintage and I know, and I felt like just from the outside watching you start, it started with really with your admiration of the women around you and yes. their style. I mean, I thought, yes. and, and, and talk to me about beauty to Italians and in Italy. It, it's a, they have different standards, don't they? Oh my gosh. Yeah. There's a whole <laughs> chapter on bellezza as an <laughs> adjective, as a state of mind. You know, the Italians don't use good or bad to describe situations. They use beautiful and ugly. It wasn't a terrible situation. It was an ugly situation. It wasn't a good party. It was a beautiful party. I mean, it's so, it's so hilarious. I mean, they are nuts about beauty <laughs> and, and maybe even too much. I have to say, like one thing I've noticed with them is that sometimes, you know, they put a lot of pressure on their, this is one thing, not pressure, but they put a lot of attention on people, places, and things that they do find beautiful. So I've noticed that that that's one of the things that maybe they need more awareness of is, you know, trying to cultivate that inner beauty rather than that outer beauty. But I will say that Italy is gobsmacked full with outer beauty everywhere. I mean, from 
the people themselves that are very attractive to the clothing they wear, the way they put themselves together. You've been to Milan so many times, you know, it's about that, like, perfect outfit, that balance of like, maybe there's a little embellishment, maybe there's like a mannish coat, a pencil skirt, or like a, like a flared Prada situation. They're wearing a kitten heel or a very slight little heel on a bicycle. I mean, it's like, (laughs) it's no helmets, minimal makeup. You know, it's just, it's very, very, very elegant. And I was obsessed when I came because I had never seen women that were so chic yeah and at the same time were decorating their homes with so much elegance and throwing the best parties and like seamless wonderful but fun parties and had full-time jobs and were friendly people you know what I'm saying? Like usually like those people are jerks or like, you know, <laughs> ordering around staff. Like these are like very open-hearted, wonderful people. So there was a lot to learn. And that's really what I, I you know, when I started the website, I, I really focused on those women. In the book, you see some of them and some yeah. of the lessons I learned from them, which is all in this section called the School of Shura. And the word Shura is actually the name of an of an Italian classic housewife, which I just explained, you know, has the taste, has the pantry organized, has like the staff, the homes, all this stuff, but they typically don't work. So these, the women that I featured in the magazine, they actually weren't technically shure because these women yeah. all have jobs and they were very <laughs> creative and they would probably be a little insulted to be referred to <laughs> as a shura because it kind of implies a sense of like privilege and the the leisure class that they don't subscribe to. But what I found so interesting is that these women that I found that were working, they also had their pantries organized like that. And like 16 like forms of sheets that were all ironed by hand. And, you know, the underwear was ironed and like everything was ironed. I mean, it was just, it was amazing. One of the parts I really loved was um, the section about the creation nation and and Milan and all of your collaborations with creatives. Talk to me about that and how, how helpful that's been. I don't think that's anybody's experience in New York, maybe California, but I don't, that's not a typical experience. What I learned is that relationships drive everything. It never would have occurred to me before when I was working, you know, I had a career in advertising and marketing. I would never like call a friend for like, it was like, this is business, like, you know, like we got to go, go, go. Everything is almost like antiseptic in a weird way when you're working in America. And in Italy, the lines really blur and there's a lot of relationships. It's hard to get stuff done in Italy without those relationships, what I talk about. And certainly starting the company, you know, uh, first of all, I was, you know, looked to my ex with my, my husband at the time who had his company was doing e-commerce. So he was going to help me with the website. Then I was like, okay, well, let me just call my friend who I know does great styling, Viviana Volpicella. So that l- let me let me think of that. I didn't think of the the best stylist in the world. I was like, this is my friend who does who do, who I really love, and she does that really well. Then when it came time to launching the new clothing, you know, we knew the Mantero family. We had been to their house in Como, so it was suddenly like, hey, let me call up these people. Hey, I know you've never thought about this, but like, what if I went into your archive? And like dug around and picked out a bunch of prints, put them on a new dress. And I co-branded because nobody talks about you guys, even though every luxury brand in the world basically has passed through Mantero Setta 
in like, I mean, you go there and you see all the luxury brands printing their silk there. And they were so tickled and honored that I thought to talk about them and promote them. And I really realized that there's such this power in partnership. And, you know, also, Laura, I didn't come from a design background. So I didn't come as I am a you know, star designer who needs to be in charge and everyone needs to report to me. I've really come as a journalist, you know, with more of an editorial background. And it's kind of like, I see the way things can fit together and the stories that can be created around this. Like Italy in the last 20 years has really suffered with the brain drain. You know, not only have a lot of really well-educated Italians like move to New York for their high-powered career. But then you have a lot of production moving to China, a lot of big companies going and producing in the East. And this has done terrible things to all the craft, all the artisans that are make up the fabric of this country. So it was also kind of like, I thought like a way to give back to Italy because after you know, all those years of hating it, I was now its biggest cheerleader and I love to give back. And also a really cool way to, to, you know, shine a light on many of them that just, you know, didn't know how to market themselves. So we started collaborating with Mantero for all the fabrics that we were making. Then we started collaborating with Salviati, which is a, you know, this Salviati is 250 years old. They've been blowing glass in Murano. So that was our glassware. Then we partnered with ANCAP in Verona for the porcelain, Mashoni for our table linens outside of Milan. Now we have an incredible printer that does all of our placed prints. They're called Gioldi. They've been around since, you know, before the war as well. So there's a lot of, a lot of pride, a lot of something I just think is so in, uh, amazing and important is to develop relationships with these people beyond just your director of operations talking to their factory. Well, and the other thing about it with Familia, I mean, the fact that these are all, these are family owned businesses that have been, you know, that are 10 generations of, of Salviati's, I imagine. Exactly. And we just had this wonderful press presentation during fashion week. We had this carousel, we casted models that were real women. It was like this really joyful moment. And, you know, all of our suppliers were there. Like they're all there. It's so beautiful how they all come and support. And, you know, there's one, um, I have my list of fairy godmothers in the book. And one is this woman called Antonella, who was our first pattern maker, seamstress factory. And, you know, most listeners probably won't realize that when you're starting out a fashion brand, you can't just go and knock on someone's door and say, hey, will you produce this for me? (laughs) I mean, you need to have a proven track record that you can sell, that you can produce a certain number of garments. And the number is high based on what designers usually do when they're first starting out. And we were introduced to Antonella through Montero. She did us a favor. We took her out for pizza and she was like, hey, you know what? I'll just give it a try. And if it doesn't work, hey, we'll go out for another pizza. I love it. I mean, it was so cute. And by the way, now we never eat pizza with Antonella. Do you think that's the secret behind La Double J's success? I mean, do you think do you think that's it is partnerships and and support from all around? Yeah, I think I think it's that and it's the way that like I'm not really trying to do important quote unquote fashion. I'm really trying to give a product that brings people joy and that 
And, and it is my pleasure when I see women of all ages, all economic brackets. I realize we have an expensive product, but anyway, sometimes there's pieces that are less expensive, all body shapes, all like, you know, also kind of social demographics, like from the coolest women and actresses and VIPs to kind of like, you know, just a regular woman, you know, whatever, you know, just maybe not the most stylish in the world, but like she puts that dress on and she feels like a million euro. That is fantastic. And I think people relate to that. And we talk to them in a way that is very open and conversational. So I think maybe that's also a part of it. I want to say also you and Capital were such an early- We were early. <laughs> you were such an early believer. And not only that, but you welcomed me to your home and your shop in a very Italian way. Do you have advice on how others can step into their own creativity? Because this wasn't a goal for your, that you had for yourself. This was almost like a surprise, you know, it seems like. And I would say to step into your own creativity, number one, allow for unexpected detours and surprises. Okay. Yes. So number one, and by the way, this is all in the book too. We've got this whole, like, you know, we, we really talk about cr creativity as like a, you know, analytical, like, you know, we break it down scientifically, but you know, you start by having your intention. Okay. That is so important. You can't just be wishy-washy about this. You want to have goals. You want to have the intention and you get up every day and you run towards that. But when you start hitting walls or closed doors, I mean, of course you're going to knock, you're going to keep knocking. But if on the third time that door doesn't open, it's time to move. It's time to go to the left. It's time to go to the right. It's time to open a window and like get through in a different way. And I think this happens so much is that people get really bogged down by an idea of what it is that they have to do. And they're not operating from this pure creative energy, which wants to come through that has nothing to do with your head and has everything to do with your heart your belly that's giving you, the heart is like giving you all the jazz. So, you know, first of all, what gets your feet tapping? Where do you start realizing that you talk really fast and get super excited? Those are heart expanding things, people, places, activities, get very familiar with what it is that opens your heart like that. Okay. That's very important. And then the other thing is, you have to really start using your intuition. I mean, of course we need the brain. You need a business plan. If you're starting a business itself, you know, you need to bring some of that masculine energy that the Americans do so well. You guys are such great organizers. I love it. But you also need to use your body. And this is something I really learned through all the other um, spiritual techniques and um, practices. It's really, you know, so much of our activity is happening in the mind. We forget about the body, except for when we're doing like vigorous exercise to burn off last night's pasta. <laughs> and we're not really using the body in its like fully, I would say, exalted way as a messenger for everything. There's such an intelligence here and the stomach, especially and the womb area. And you need to start getting really, really connected to that by the signals you know, as you're talking about something or to someone, does your stomach clench up or does your stomach open? And do you suddenly start feel yourself like buzzing, et cetera? Those are giving your, I mean, that's your body talking to you. Yes and no, right? 
And, you know, there's also women especially need to be very attentive to like their rhythms. I mean, uh, you know, whole other thing that I went into was like uh, being a part of a Yanni group, uh, you know, doing the healing after not being able to uh, have children. There's so much going on in our rhythms and men have rhythms too. Women have them more. And I'm not just talking about your menstrual cycle. I'm just talking about your cycle of I'm up, I'm excited. I'm, you know, I'm creating and now something I'm letting go. I'm resting. There's a lot of this that gets completely negated in our Western culture. We are always encouraged to just go, 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 punch through, punch through. You need these times of rest. You need these times of, you know, going inward, silence, stillness. A lot of the information wants to come through you. A meditation practice helps so much as you're creating. So it's like you have that fire and then you need a down moment, like spend some time journaling things. It's just, it's super important. A spiritual practice really helps a creative practice because the spiritual practice is creative and vice versa. Exactly. What do you wish every woman understood about feminine energy and the role of, and, and what role the mother can look like? Okay. So what I want every woman to know about feminine energy is that it's not something to be embarrassed about or that it's something weak because typically feminine energy has been associated with female gendered human beings and female gendered human beings have also been subjugated They've been sort of seen as less than, they've been in the background, they haven't been in the top roles, et cetera. So this is the first mistake. This energetic that I'm talking about has nothing to do with a gender. It's actually the this principle of listening, feeling, being, not doing, stillness, all of these things, tolerance, openness. This is like, nurturing something, nurturing yourself. And then these all become, these are all very connected to, you know, so the feminine energetic is obviously very connected to what I call like the divine mother frequency. You know, we also have the divine masculine, you know, that we have the divine feminine and the divine masculine. We need both. But I felt that at least my experience growing up in America was very, very focused on this masculine, which was very active, very ambitious, I would say. It moves, it builds, it analyzes, it's very logical, it's super helpful, it will get you into college, it's a machine, but it's not necessarily going to make you a fully formed or happy individual. And it also on its negative side, I mean, building all these things that I just said, many of the things I just said are very positive, but the masculine also when it's distorted, it's critical. It's judgmental. It is too analytical. It doesn't allow for any emotion. It doesn't allow for any feeling. And so I just found like, I, when I started learning about all this, I was like, Holy shit, why are they not teaching this in kindergarten? One of the most incredible photos in this book is of you in your wedding dress. Tell me oh. the story. Oh my God. JJ, that was not real. I mean, I, I was like, it, this can't be real. It was so spectacular. Okay, so first of all, a huge call out to my dear friend in Milan, Lawrence Steele. Yep who 
is the most amazing designer. And he had this, he was kind of this, like he was an American wonder kid, started his career at, at Moschino, then went to Prada and then launched his own business. I mean, he did Jennifer Aniston's wedding dress. I was going to say, he did. Pitt. I remember so pretty. It's so cool. <laughs> anyway, I was looking for a dress, looking for a dress, couldn't find anything. I mean, I think that it was maybe even two months before I was getting married and I still didn't have a dress. <laughs> and I went to Paris during the shows. Um, I think I was there in July for couture. I got married in September. I was there for July for the couture shows and I dropped into Didier Ludo and I found this Balmain couture 1960s dress that has Lesage embroidery all over the front and it's sea green. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh my God, how pretty. It was so beautiful. It was, well, it kind of had cream and sea green. It was so beautiful. And so I brought it back to Lawrence because, you know, it had that sort of back flap on it. It was kind of mumsy a little bit, but so he cut into it. It, it had a, a round high neck and he cut a V into it. He, he, he took off the back flap. We, it was also too short for me. So we went to a vintage place in Milan and got this beautiful antique lace in the same color. He created like a border around it, a train. And so he really did, by the way, you know, as you, as you probably know, I was collecting vintage for 25 years. If I told any important vintage collector that I took scissors to <laughs> vintage Balmain couture, I would have gotten executed. Well, and the, I thought the veil was so beautiful. It was so chic. Aww. Everything about it. JJ, this was such a treat. The pleasure is mine. And I'm, I'm very grateful to you. What We Wore is produced by Capital and Balto Creative Media. The original song, Someone So Enchanting, was composed and performed by Britt Drozda. Please follow us on Instagram at What We Wore Podcast for additional content and show updates. QueenCityPodcastNetwork.com. dot com.